This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Florida's vaccine rollout continues as coronavirus cases continue to soar. With the vaccines being distributed to frontline medical staff and people 65 and up, different counties are taking a patchwork approach to getting the first doses out. Appointments have booked out quickly and in some cases people have camped out overnight for a chance at the vaccine. Well, joining me for more are Dr. George Rolls. He is the Senior Vice President and Chief Medical Officer with Orlando Health. Dr. Rolls, thank you so much for being here. Happy to be here. And Mary Mayhew, who is the CEO and President of the Florida Hospital Association. Mary, thank you as well. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Dr. Rolls, I want to begin with you. Um, Orlando Health had about 20,000 doses, I think, lined up, and those were snapped up pretty quickly in terms of um, appointments. Did that process kind of play out as you expected it to? Yeah, to some degree. I think we were a little surprised at the very, very sudden uh, sort of uptake of the appointment slots. It happened, I would say, close to within 12 hours that we saw the uh, slots fill up. Um, and uh, that rollout of information was um, uh, was slower than we had liked. We wanted to have that type of volume earlier, but uh, and we thought we were coming late to it over the weekend when that uh, invite went out for the appointments. It filled up so fast, we realized that that, that demand is really out there. Do you keep um, tabs on where people are making appointments from? Because one thing I've heard is that, you know, the, the different counties obviously started out by saying you have to be a county resident to to uh, get a vaccine, but then that process obviously changed because the state said, no, you don't, there's no requirement for that. And I have heard that people are driving, you know, in some cases across the state to to, uh, to be able to get the chance to get a vaccine. Do you kind of have an, an idea of where people are coming from to, to get the vaccine at RMC? I think a good way to put it is we have an idea, but we don't use that as a, as a verification step. And I, I would say that that in some ways it's those verification steps that do slow the process down. Uh, we either there's only so much that we can control in terms of our ability to open the doors and, and get the right people in. And we tried not to put barriers in, in a way. What we knew was that the governor had uh, an executive order that he expected us to comply with. And we did as best as we could to comply with that. Um, there are likely scenarios even with that in place that people might have stuck around that one way or another because uh, you know the scheduling systems that we use and most other areas are using are not intended to verify anything. So we are relying on people to um, to use good judgment and understand the need to, to get this vaccine to the right folks. We were assuming people were making the right decision for the community and hoping for the best. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering too, I mean, the the if you think back a few months, getting people tested for coronavirus, that was a bit of a a kind of a work in progress getting that up and running. Um, are we seeing some of the same challenges in terms of getting the vaccine out to people? Is it more about logistics and figuring out how to do it rather than just having a sort of one size fits all approach to this? So I'll start and I'll turn it over to Mary. Um, I can tell you that the one thing that is absolutely the same is that this is all new and all happening very fast mm-hmm. and that um, it, it's outpacing, you know, what, um, you know, what we can do as a system so despite many, many years of talking about pandemic planning, we've you know, I've been in public safety for you know my, almost my entire career now with Orlando Health. Uh, we've been talking through what happens when we get the big pandemic for, for decades. And it, this was still a surprise. There were a lot of things that we encountered with this that we just couldn't have planned for, really couldn't have anticipated. So. Mm-hmm. Well, Mary, what's your perspective on that? Now, Dr. Rawls is, is correct. I mean, truly, first, let's just start with the positive. A lot of people want to be vaccinated and we actually have a vaccine. The, the reality is the demand far exceeds the supply and the logistics as you both have pointed out are significant because we don't want people 
uh, especially our, our vulnerable elderly, lining up, being in overcrowded situations and risking greater exposure to COVID-19, something that we've been guarding against now for months. So this involves a level of scheduling, uh, deploying of staff, which I'm sure Orlando Health can speak to. You know, we are trying to maximize staff both to be at the bedside and now to be supporting the administration of vaccine. And so the scheduling, the staffing, the locations, you don't want healthy people coming to a hospital emergency department to get vaccinated. The role that hospitals are playing today to support this massive effort to vaccinate is far different than the process that typically exists for vaccinations. Mm -hmm. We go to our doctor's offices, we go to pharmacies. So hospitals, yes, have done a great job getting their staff vaccinated and then have created the infrastructure to help support the state, their county, their communities with this public outreach to other healthcare personnel in the community and our vulnerable 65 and older, and certainly those who are medically vulnerable. But we didn't have this infrastructure. There was no switch that we could just immediately flip to have this in place. And again, the other key point is there's a second dose that's required. So the follow-up appointments, the ability to do outreach to those who are vaccinated to call them back in for the second has to be part of the equation. I want to just pick up on something you mentioned there, Mary, and that is the notion of people queuing up and the risks associated with that. Although obviously you're not seeing that at hospitals because to your point, there's a, an appointment schedule and they're sort of keeping that pretty tightly managed. But you are seeing that in situations where vaccinations have been done in like stadiums, for example, like Daytona Beach uh, had that process. We've seen uh, first comes, first serve situations in Lake County in Central Florida as well. Are you concerned by the risks that those pose? Because we have seen people queuing up overnight in some cases. So you're out there with a lot of other people for a pretty long stretch of time before you get that first dose. You know, we're trying to balance this unprecedented goal of vaccinating millions of individuals in a short period of time. But part of that equation has got to be our continued vigilance of preventing unnecessary exposure, risk of exposure to COVID-19. The sophistication of the systems that are required, even hospitals are having to adjust and modernize their scheduling systems in order to accommodate. When you start talking about county government, county public health departments, they, they simply may not have the kind of software and systems. We certainly have seen the websites crashing mm -hmm. at hospitals right. uh, because of the intensity of volume. So we need to keep our eyes on the priorities, right? We want to quickly, urgently, effectively deploy this vaccine, but at the same time, have the infrastructure to protect, to safely schedule and support individuals getting vaccines without uh, the risk of exposure to COVID-19. Well, to that point then, I mean, is it would it be better then to to not risk people exposing themselves and if they do have to queue up for a long time to get it, if it's first come, first served, and figure out a way to get those people appointments? Or is it better just to say, we need to get as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible, therefore, if this is the best we can do, we're going to do it this way? We have to manage expectations. I mean, the, the bottom line is the supply today doesn't even meet uh, the demand. Sure. You, you know, this 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 initial rush 
mean, we're to a point where a lot of hospitals are already running out of uh, what they have for inventory. I think over time, over the next couple of weeks, you are going to see the sophistication of the systems brought to bear. You have hospitals doing outreach to county health departments saying, let us collaborate and partner with you regionally at the county level to leverage those systems, those software and scheduling systems. It, we are going to see this smooth out. Uh, it is like, as you described, testing. Uh, there were uh, various improvements that continually needed to be made to the operation of those testing sites. I'm confident you'll see the same here uh, with our, our massive effort to vaccinate. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Rolls, um, I want to ask you about uh, I think something which is a little bit different about the way Orlando Regional Medical Center, Orlando Health, went about their um, distribution or are going about the distribution of the vaccine, and that is opening up access to family members 65 and older of frontline staff. Can you talk a little bit about the decision there? Yeah. yeah so we, we um, as Mary said, uh, knew that there was not enough supply to meet the demand, and we wanted to have some degree of, uh, of an ability to predict who uh, would be showing up, how many people, could we get them scheduled? And we had to have a way also to, um, to use a, an existing scheduling system that we had modified. It was really intended to be internal facing for team members to get flu vaccines, believe it or not. So we had a savvy IT team that was able to quickly shift that, um, that interface to be able to meet the COVID need. Um, but once we got through our first line uh, team members, we immediately said, let's let's not wait to start to move towards that 65 and over group. The easiest reach that we could make, uh, and that was over the, over the holidays, we were scrambling over the holidays to try to get it, that in motion, was to shift that out to that group's 65 and over family members. We knew that that group was paying attention. We had their email addresses. Um, it wasn't an open everybody coming to schedule because that gets to the point of uh, first of all, you would immediately exhaust, you know, the uh, the supply, and it and it creates a lot of frustration and confusion for people if, they, if they're coming to a location without knowing they're going to get a shot. Mm -hmm. But with this approach of using the team member focused, 65 and over contacts, family members, loved ones, we we knew we had a little bit more control about how it was scheduled. So that's the approach that we took, and then that that quickly transitioned fast because once people heard that that was available, we did have some seepage of that knowledge out to a larger group and it was fine. You know, what we instructed our teams to do was to say, if they meet the governor's executive order, we're not turning people away. We want to do our best to try to accommodate as many people that are coming through as possible. And it, it allowed us to maximize those slots. If I could just comment on that. I mean, the other challenge as I mentioned is we've got dramatically increasing COVID-19 hospitalizations. Mm -hmm we have got to make sure that we have capacity in the system to care for both COVID hospitalized patients and non-COVID uh, patients. We need our staff healthy and at the bedside. So being able to vaccinate the, the, the family members of those staff to prevent that risk of community acquired COVID among our staff, uh, the workforce challenges right now are significant. We know what we experienced in July and August. We had to depend on agency staffing to fill gaps. So what Orlando Health has done, what other hospitals uh, are trying to do is to ensure that they have healthy staff being able to be at the bedside to care for patients. So clearly uh, critically important that family members are part of that equation. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to pick up too on something you know, I mean, th this whole notion, um, Dr. Rawls too. I mean, one thing we've heard from frontline healthcare workers, you know, over the course of the pandemic since last March is that 
you know, one of their biggest fears is exposing family members because they're on the front line of things. So, I mean, did, did you have conversations with your, your frontliner saying, you know, if we were to offer this, is this the way to go? Like, did you get some input from, from your staff on that? We did. And that, that's, you know, the psychological impact of this, you know, on everybody obviously is clear. But when you think uh, about those frontline healthcare workers, you know, they make a decision to come to work every day. Um, and they have been pushing through in a way that just is amazing to watch. But they also go home and they've got people that they care for at home as well. And and I, I think the idea of, and I can tell you that we, we witnessed this firsthand, the, the, the sentiment, the sense of relief that the positive sort of energy that there was in the um, in the group to, for them to be able to say I was able to bring my mother and father and my grandparents and uh, these are things that they had on their minds these are burdens that they were carrying around that they now um, you know can start to think past so I really think it was a, a very very important psychological turning point for a lot of people but especially for and I, I we witnessed this firsthand with our team members uh, it was it was an incredible sort of reaction to that and, and a very very positive thing. For, them something they really needed right now because this is not over as mary said uh, our teams are working harder now probably than they ever have uh, because we not only have a lot of COVID patients in the hospital but a little different than what we had in the summer we have we have a lot of other patients in the hospital two hospitals are all very busy there's not a single hospital in the state that, that doesn't have some degree of sort of you know sense of being overwhelmed so we are working hard to to protect our team members ability to do that and one way to do that is protect them another way to do that is protect those that support them you're listening to Intersection on WMFE. I'm Matthew Petty, speaking with Dr. George Rolls with Orlando Health and Mary Mayhew with the Florida Hospital Association about the challenge of vaccine rollout and how hospitals are coping with the demand. We'll be back with more in a minute. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Let's get back to our conversation about the rollout of COVID-19 vaccines in Florida and how hospitals are scrambling to meet sky-high demand. My guests are Dr. George Rolls with Orlando Health and Mary Mayhew with the Florida Hospital Association. Um, Mary, I want to ask you about something that the governor talked about a couple of days ago. He said that hospitals which aren't getting their vaccines out fast enough could lose those vaccines to other hospitals. Um, I mean, it sounds like pretty much the demand is such that hospitals are getting the vaccines out pretty quickly. I mean, does that seem like a good strategy, though, to say to hospitals, you've just got to get it out as quickly as possible or else? Well, look, the the bottom line is that we share the governor's goal of getting as many vaccines into people's arms as quickly as possible, right? That is the fundamental goal. And so if that means uh, maximizing local resources and transferring vaccine to another entity, whether that's a hospital, whether that's a federally qualified health center, a large medical practice, we are supportive of those efforts. We simply need to make sure that there is clear understanding about the logistics we just described. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, the appropriate amount of vaccines that can be administered per day, given the safety factors that we believe need to be a part of that equation, the deployment of staff. But at the end of the day, in order to accomplish the state's goals, it's going to take a coordinated community effort, maximizing staff from federally qualified health centers, from medical practices, from the hospitals to support the administration 
of the vaccine. So we are absolutely supportive. We just want to make sure that people understand it takes time to set up those uh, scheduled appointments to have the staff available. The worst possible thing that could happen, and I think you may have mentioned this earlier, is to have that infrastructure stood up, have appointments scheduled, have people show up and not have the vaccine available. So the biggest challenge right now, along with the supply not meeting demand, is the lack of predictability of when vaccine will arrive, how much will be provided, so that the planning week over week can be done. Mm-hmm. Would it make more sense, though, to rather than kind of do it piecemeal and, and sort of parcel it out to different hospital systems and health departments or the health department, but in different counties, would it make more sense to have a more centralized way of doing this, do you think? Well, you are seeing that. Um, you are seeing um, certainly the state's uh, effort to contract with a uh, 1,000 nurses to support community-based vaccination sites, again, very similar to the testing sites. You are seeing hospitals come together in a region to develop coordinated plans intended to both inventory the healthcare professionals that they all combined have that can support the actual administration of the vaccine and and doing that by looking at, well, how much vaccine are we going to get? And then together, how do we support the best processes? It's also important to make sure that not only are we leveraging community-based vaccination sites, but in some instances, there are home health agencies, as an example, for our elderly, our medically vulnerable, to be able to administer vaccines at homes. We just, we need to leverage all of those resources to do this in the kind of time frame that we're describing. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like one of the biggest challenges, to your point, Mary, uh, just not knowing when the next doses are going to come from. And of course, there are different vaccines, right? I mean, some you got to keep extra cold, others don't have those kind of requirements. I wanted to to pivot, if I could, Dr. Rolls, and ask you, there's, you know, this emergence of a new, even more infectious strain of COVID. Um, do you think that poses a significant hurdle to either the fight against the virus itself, to, you know, to the point of those increasing hospitalization numbers, or even just vaccination plans? Yeah, at this point, I don't think there's, there's any um, clear evidence that it threatens the vaccination plan. I think we're moving in the right direction, and we have an immediate issue that we have to address, and that is the current circulating you know, uh, viral strain that um, that is causing us most of our problems. But there's a, you know, I think what we have now is a very, very engaged scientific community that's going to pick that apart very quickly. Um, so again, there's, there, there's, uh, there are unknowns, no doubt. That's going to remain the case for, you know, months and years to come on this and many other, you know, sort of infectious disease fronts. But I would say this isn't a time to worry about that per se. I think we, we need to stay focused on what we are, especially from the operational perspective. We do get questions, you know, what are we going to do about this new strain? And so let's let's think about the strain we're dealing with right now. Let's keep moving. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we get enough um, evidence to, to know what the right step is, what type of adjustments we need to make, then those will be made. Uh, so there's been probably no, no more reassuring thing to see than just the amount of, of engagement there is in between the, not just the scientific community, but every, everybody, the scientific community, the community at large, and the, and the healthcare community to address these things as they're evolving. Are you kind of thinking ahead, though, to what the next pandemic, you know, the problems the next pandemic might pose? I mean, you, you kind of have to think about that, right? I've been doing that for the last 30 years. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Um, no, I, I, there's no doubt. You know, this this is um, this is absolutely an unprecedented event for our generation, but it's not unprecedented. Unprecedented, and, you know, you know, for forever. I mean, this has happened before. It's it's a different experience for us, and there's no doubt that we're going to have to prepare and plan for for something else. Mm-hmm. Um, so we will continue to to look at this as um, as a you know. A, this is an active response right now, but it's also a learning opportunity for us to prepare for what might be done down the road. Mary Mayhew, before you were in your current role, you oversaw Florida's Agency for Healthcare Administration. You also chaired Governor DeSantis's task force on reopening long-term care facilities. So you've gotten a good perspective on the pandemic from both the hospital and the government side. Does that give you a good sense of where hospitals need to go from here as this rollout continues and as those cases continue to mount and hospitalizations go up? It, it does. Uh, there are a lot of lessons learned um, over the last many months. I think we have some silver linings about what has uh, some catalysts for change that have occurred as a result of the pandemic that we don't want to lose sight of. Uh, again, separate from how we manage and respond to COVID, uh, the increase in telehealth has been dramatic. Uh, we don't want to lose sight of that. But in terms of my vantage point, overseeing the agency, uh, providing supports to hospitals and nursing homes, and then today in this capacity. The reality is the state and government often, uh, government is not nimble. Uh, It is difficult to uh, organize around the kind of urgent response in an emergency. Government and the state particularly are there to provide resources, but the emergency is responded to locally. Uh, And in a public health response, uh, certainly uh, Florida benefits by having a county health uh, infrastructure that that provides boots on the ground resources locally. Hospitals inevitably are pivotal partners in that response. Uh, What I saw uh, early on, and Dr. Rawls I'm sure can speak to this, the challenge of the data analysis and the predictive analytics and being able to anticipate Uh, how that uh, infection rate would occur and its impact on hospitalizations, the acuity of the patients, the use of ICU beds. We've learned a lot uh, from that process. And and truly what was most powerful was the ability to use Florida data to inform Florida decision-making at the state level and at the local level. Uh, Our hospitals have learned a lot in particular around surge planning. I can't underscore that enough. Um, Dr. Rawls mentioned we've had a lot of uh, various crises over the last many years. This surge planning where you are maximizing your physical plant space, you figure out when to shut off electives, how to convert beds to ICU level of care, There is a lot uh, that we have learned and need to be able to leverage for the next crisis. And unfortunately, we're having to leverage it right now as we head into another peak that is likely close to or may exceed the peak that we experienced in uh, July. I would tell you the one area though uh, that we don't have a lot of answers for and that's the workforce. At the end of the day, we can capitalize on physical plant space bring beds in, but having nurses and doctors available is our um, biggest challenge. And of course, right now, the entire country uh, is grappling with that same challenge. Just on the the notion of government 
you know, not being nimble. I mean, I wonder just though if it's just a matter of resource. And we've seen that a little bit in Orange County where if you talk about contact tracers, for example, it took a while to get the contact tracers they wanted. Um, they had to spend a bit of time sort of, you know, getting the resources to do that. Would it just make more sense? Or do you, do you think that this pandemic has shown a need for better resourcing for, for county health departments? There, there is definitely more that needs to be understood about that. When you think about post 9-11, a lot of emergency preparedness dollars flowed to the states, to counties, to health systems. I think we need to take a look at what, what was the intent over the last uh, 20 years as we tried to support and create infrastructure. I mean, some of it, to Dr. Rawls's point, may simply be you know, there's some foundation there, but there's something unique about each challenge, uh, about a pandemic, about um, other public health responses. How do we have a, a foundation upon which we can build, uh, you know, the IT infrastructure that's needed, whether that's contact tracing, whether that's um, uh, the, the appointment scheduling that we're talking about, or the data analytics to predict. I mean, as you know, unfortunately, in government, their IT systems become out of date uh, quickly, and and rarely is there the commitment of capital uh, to keep pace with those changes. And it isn't all about IT infrastructure, but that's a huge component given the uh, effort that has occurred over the last many months to support the response. Dr. Rawls, I mean, you may have some thoughts on the IT component as well. Yeah, and I think just in general, I think, you know, the, the, the public health system in Florida um, is um, has, has a tremendous partnership with the healthcare systems in Florida. So I just want to sort of make that clear that this isn't, uh, there's not something happening that's unique to Florida because we had some type of deficiency in our public health system. What we have as the most important resource in our public health system in this state is relationships that, that were well developed before this ever happened. So, um, you know, there are different ways to do things. And I think anticipating uh, what might come next and trying to sort of resource up for that um, isn't um, necessarily the most effective way to use uh, those resources. So I, I, I think that's something to think about. This is uh, still, again, you know, a, you know a, a new experience for us. The pandemic definitely has reframed uh, a lot of the ways that we think about public health. How important is this to a community? Well, I think everybody can see now that a, a massive public health crisis can lo literally shut us down, which it has, right? Uh, but it's but but we are still working very 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 well together, and um, and I think it's important to recognize the fact that the public health system here is at the table with us on all of these decisions. What does the next couple months look like for you? Are you are you stressing out about this? Um, well, it, I, I, I don't know if the stress is the right word. It is stressful, obviously, for all of us, not just me. And certainly, it doesn't matter whether you're in healthcare or not. This is a stressful time for everyone. Um, we are um, we are making specific decisions today that are look, looking downrange two or three months in terms of how we're going to use our, our um, hospital-based resources, how we might shift some of our outpatient ambulatory-type resources to meet the ongoing needs um, it's this is not over, and as Mary pointed out, when you look at the the numbers, you know we don't know where we're going to be in a month. It could be higher than we've ever been before. At the same time, maybe things level off. It, you know, so there's no um, no option but to continue to uh, adjust day to day. And um, 
you know, I, I think there's a, there is an amazing amount of resilience that I've seen um, on my team. And I know I've seen across, you know, other teams and across the state, there's a massive amount of engagement between the health systems. Um, you had mentioned this, the, uh, the issue of, of moving vaccines around. Honestly, you know, there's, I, I don't think there's a single health system that wouldn't do the right thing if that's what was felt to be necessary, we would do it too. Um, so I think that that's what keeps that sort of stress under control is knowing that we have each other's back and um, and we are absolutely with no doubt going to get through this. And we'll be ready to face the next one. Well, um, I want to thank you both. Uh, Dr. George Rolls is the Senior Vice President and Chief Medical Officer with Orlando Health. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we're also joined by Mary Mayhew. She is the President and CEO of the Florida Hospital Association. Mary, thank you so much as well. Thank you. Been a pleasure. Still to come, the holidays are busy for animal rescue organisations and Orlando Rabbit Care and Adoptions has seen an increase in the number of abandoned and unwanted pets during the pandemic. We'll talk with three members of the organisation about trying to find homes for rabbits and battling a deadly disease that could decimate domestic rabbits. Intersections back in a minute. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. The holidays are busy for animal rescue organisations and Orlando Rabbit Care and Adoptions has seen an increase in the number of abandoned and unwanted pets during the pandemic. Now there's a new challenge facing the organisation and the domestic rabbit population. A deadly disease called hemorrhagic fever has made its way to the east coast of the United States. Well, joining me are Kathy Harcher and Jessica Helmer and Denica Robbins. They are with Orlando Rabbit Care and Adoption. Thank you all for being here. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for having us. So, Kathy, uh, let me start with you. You've been involved with this organization for quite some time. Um, tell me a little bit about the background of it. What do you do? All right. The um, organization was originally founded as a social and educational group and um, focused on promoting rabbits as um, house pets, and I should say domestic rabbits. And um, they also would participate in educational events like at vet fairs, veg fests, things like that. And then in 2016, we were contacted by um, a person who had two rabbits and then had eight rabbits and then ended up with over 20 rabbits. And she asked for help and we said, well, we'll come in, we'll get them spayed and neutered and we'll help you find homes for them. And then since then, the organization has really been focused on rescues as well as education. Um, last year, we adopted out 136 rabbits. Um, we took in 177. We have around 90 rabbits all in foster care now. We have no facility. Um, we are 100% foster based. We are a 501c3 nonprofit um, and we get all of our money through donations and um, events that we have. Of course, with COVID, that's been restricted quite a bit. Yeah. So, Jessica, as a volunteer, you sometimes are involved with uh, kind of, I guess, getting the rabbits from people who, who kind of can't look after them anymore and, and, and you're the sort of liaison between the rabbits and their new, you know, homes, right? Um, how does that work? Like not having a, a shelter must be a little bit complicated sometimes. Yeah, as Kathy said, we are completely foster based. Uh, and 
because of that, we are always looking out for people who can who can foster rabbits. We, is, we are always continually full and we're not the only ones. Rabbit rescues all across the state are always full and we're always looking for, for people to foster. Um, and honestly, when I've been wrangling the rabbits, these are actually strays. So the uh, owners have already decided that they didn't want to keep the rabbit and they just decide that it's a good idea to let the rabbit go. When in fact, that's really kind of a death sentence for a domestic rabbit. Um, and so what we do is we bring a couple of volunteers and sometimes some rabbits are faster than others. So sometimes it takes a couple of days even to wrangle up the rabbits. But once we do, we make sure they're safe. They get their vet checkups. Um, and once they're ready, we get them spayed or neutered before we put them up for adoption. So it is kind of a, a long process, especially if they've been abused or injured out there in the wild. Um, then sometimes they need additional care, which can get really expensive. Um, so it can it can take sometimes several months to get uh, from the point where we get the rabbits in to the point where they're adopted. Mm -hmm. um, Denica, how do you get the word out uh, for you know getting new homes for rabbits, or how do people kind of get in touch with you guys? Um, well, our preferred method for people to get in touch about uh, adopting is to use the forums on our website. Um, but when I joined the group in 2017. Um, I'm a professional designer as my full-time job. We're, um, as Kathy mentioned, we were all volunteer-based. We don't have any paid administrators or um, uh, members or anything like that. So uh, I noticed that there was a need for them to have social media. So I started an Instagram and uh, a Facebook account, of course. Um, so we just started posting stories about the rabbits. Um, fortunately, we have the ability to have a link for donations on there. Um, and we've started doing uh, events like as, as Kathy mentioned, we used to do live events, but during 2020, we started doing some uh, online events like um, fundraising and we've even had um, a prominent veterinarian have a, a talk about um, a disease that's actually going through the United States right now now and uh, affecting domestic rabbits. Um, so things like that, just trying to have events and things online that people can um, connect with and connect with us um, and have a community where they can ask questions and we can try to lead them in the right direction. Is there a hotline though? I mean, say somebody sees a rabbit just hopping around, they're like, they, they want to call somewhere. Is it like a 1-800 number they can call for rabbit rescue? Unfortunately not. The best way to get in touch with us is to email info at orlandorabbit.org. And we have people uh, manning that email and we usually try to get in touch with you within 28 to 48 hours. Yeah, unfortunately, since we don't have facilities um, or paid members, we don't really have a, uh, the ability to have something like a hotline currently. Um, but Jessica, as you were saying, sometimes it takes a little bit to wrangle a, a stray rabbit. So do, do, do you get like an email saying, we saw a, a, a rabbit on Colonial Drive? And and like, I mean, what's the, because if you're getting something like emailed to you, there must be a bit of a, a lag. So does it take a little bit of detective work to track down the, the missing bunny? Yeah. Um, so surprisingly enough, bunnies kind of have a, a schedule a lot of times. And so they'll come out at a specific time during the day, um, at least in some of the cases that that I've been involved with. Um, and they, they, you know, they like a certain neighborhood or a certain area of the neighborhood. Uh, so what we do is hopefully if, it, you know, the bunny hasn't, is still out there surviving on its own by the time we get to it. Um, uh, and if that's the case, then we'll go out there at the specific time that they're usually sighted 
and we'll have volunteers uh, wrangle them up. If you're just joining me, my guests are Kathy Harcher, Jessica Helmer, and Denica Robbins. They're with Orlando Rabbit Care and Adoption. Denica, I wanted to come back to something you mentioned earlier, which is a disease that's kind of sweeping through the rabbit population in the United States. Um, hemorrhagic fever, I believe it's called. It sounds pretty nasty. What can you tell us about it? Yep. It, it is a hemorrhagic fever. Um, it's referred to as RHDV2. Um, it's been, it, it seems like it came down from Canada um, maybe a couple years ago and is kind of slowly made its way to the Western United States. And just now we're starting to see it creep over to the East coast. We were kind of hoping we'd get it stopped. Unfortunately, um, the FDA has not approved a vaccine because I'm not sure if it's because none of the American pharmaceutical companies have decided to to do it because rabbits aren't they're more seen as farm animals here than they are in other countries like the uk and canada um so to get the vac there is a vaccine there i think there's two or three vaccines actually um but to get them they have to be shipped in from other countries um now that we've seen a case uh it was just reported actually in lake county um with, I believe, a breeder. Um, not sure if they're a business or just a, a per- someone who personally bred meat rabbits. Um, uh, now vets are now finally being able to actually request the vaccine. Um, but it's going to be several months before we can actually get that vaccine. Because like I said, I think it has to be shipped from France is what I've heard um, recently. And the problem with this virus is that it has it's almost, it's pretty analogous to, to COVID. It has a really long um, staying power. And basically you can bring it in on your shoes, your pets, other pets, dogs and cats can bring it into your home if they've been around a, a, a wild rabbit outside, because this did start in wild rabbits and then jumped to domestic. Um, so, you know, we're trying to get the word about word out about preventing transmission. So keeping your rabbits indoors, a lot of people, like to take the rabbits outside, think it's fun for them to play because they think of them still sort of as, as what we think of as wild rabbits. But honestly, your domestic rabbit is much more comfortable inside, uh, just like most of your house pets. Um, yeah, well, especially because it's Florida, right? I mean, it's pretty humid for anything with fur on it <laughs> outdoors. Definitely. Domestic rabbits are actually from European stock, not from... Uh, this continent basically so they're really bred for colder temperatures and um yeah they would much rather be inside in your air conditioning away from the humidity um so we're just trying to ask people to keep their rabbits indoors make sure that you you know wash your hands and clothing and everything when you come inside just like with you know covid sanitize things we've all seen how tricky pandemics can be and vaccinations so it sounds like you're seeing a little bit of that play out on the rabbit front as well with this this disease. Yeah, Jessica, I wanted to to ask you a little bit about when you might see more rabbits being abandoned. Like, is there a kind of a high season for for you all in, in terms of people contacting you and saying we, we we need help or you know there's there's rabbits in our neighbourhood that that need a home or something. Yeah, definitely. Um, so rabbits are often impulse bought. Uh, around Easter time, as you can imagine, and sometimes during Christmas. Um, And a lot of the people who impulse buy these rabbits, they haven't done their research. They don't know what it's like to have a rabbit. It ends up, you know, they think it's a low maintenance pet when in fact it does take a lot of work and quite a bit of money to 
especially when you talk about exotic vet visits and that sort of thing. So um, they realized pretty quickly that they're not prepared to take care of a rabbit or they uh, bought it for their child and their child gets bored, the novelty wears off. Um, and about a couple months after Easter is when we start getting these calls or we start seeing um, people abandoning their pets. Mm-hmm. Kathy, what are some of the common mistakes that people might make if they're going into the process of either adopting or, or wanting to purchase a pet rabbit? Well, as Jessica mentioned, a lot of people think they're low maintenance, low cost, because you can buy a rabbit for $20. But rabbits, just like other animals, uh, when they get to their teenage years, um, if they're not spayed or neutered, they become um, a little more aggressive, they chew more, they might not have great litter box habits. And then you call a vet to get them spayed or neutered and it is hundreds of dollars. It is more expensive than a dog or cat. As um, Jenica and Jessica mentioned, you have to go to a specialized vet and people are like, this is a $20 pet. I'm not gonna spend the money on it. And then that's when they will um, go ahead and either set the rabbit free or reach out to us. They uh, Another thing is a lot of, um, Pet supplies are targeted towards humans. Like if you look at the foods, the ones with seeds and colored bits look more appealing to us. And we kind of call it like the lucky charms of rabbit food because all that stuff is bad for the rabbits. And of course they're gonna eat it, but then they'll get overweight or they'll get sick and which results in more vet bills. And to go back to uh, Peter Rabbit, what, what did he eat? He ate cabbage and carrots and those things are not good for rabbits. Yeah, I think you got a tummy ache, right? (laughs) Yes, yes. And um, carrots is like giving them a candy bar. So loaded with sugar, yeah. And you think about it, they are sweet. Um, It's loaded with sugar, so you have to watch what you give them. And I would like to mention that there is a fantastic website, rabbit.org, which is the House Rabbit Society website, and you can find all kinds of information on how to feed your rabbit, when to get them spayed and neutered, and that sort of thing. Yeah, they're a national organization dedicated to health rabbits. It sounds like there's a real need for the work that you all are doing, though, right? I mean, you you have no space left to adopt out, uh, but you are having people foster rabbits. Do those? What's the conversion rate from fostering to adoption? You know what? Of course, I don't have the the chart in front of me. I think I actually worked out the percentages for the last couple of years because we've been taking more and more rabbits. Um, and it looks like we adopted out about... 80% of our rabbits two years ago, but as we've taken more and more rabbits, I think it was down to something like 72% in 2020, just because we took on so many rabbits. Um, so like the number that we adopt out gets larger every year, but the number we take in gets larger every year. Um, and like it was mentioned, you know, it, it's kind of surprising how successful we've been considering that we don't have dedicated facilities and we rely solely on fosterers for our ability to take in and care for rabbits. So, you know, the more fosterers, dedicated fosterers we get, the more rabbits we can take care of. And, and we are constantly full. We hate turning rabbits away because honestly, the only alternative that people take is to set them free. Um, many of the city and county agencies don't accept rabbits. Oh, so you can't take it to a shelter? No, Orange County Animal Services does not accept rabbits. I think they used to when I moved here about 10, 12 years ago, um, but they do not anymore. Um, And the ones that that do take them, 
Um, I think maybe one in Seminole County has, but they don't spay and neuter them before they adopt them out. And they try to get them out of the facility as fast as possible because they don't really have the ability to care for them. Mm -hmm. Was 2020 a bit of a banner year for people like buying COVID pets? And I'm wondering if there might have been a, a bump in people saying, I'm stuck at home. I got nothing to do. I need a companion animal. I'm going to get a rabbit. Definitely. We definitely saw an uptick in adoptions um, and we're hoping that people keep those animals, but I'm sure that we're going to see even with, you know, cats and dogs and, and especially rabbits recidivism on that people trying to get rid of the rabbits when they're, you know, going back to work or their kids are going back to school in person. Um, yeah. So definitely an uptick on that. We're just crossing our fingers that people decide to keep them. Mm-hmm. And that's that's common throughout the state with all the rescues. Everybody saw an uptick in adoptions. Uh, Jessica, what's the average, what's the typical length of time somebody might foster a rabbit before either saying they can't, they, they prefer not to keep it or, or they want to keep it for good? I don't know if there's a really an average to that because it really all depends on um, on the rabbit's personality. And mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, we have bonded pairs too, and bonded pairs are a lot harder to adopt out. So sure. somebody with a bonded pair may have them for a very long time. Um, there are some rabbits, they're, they're called ruby-eyed whites. They're white with the red eyes. And a lot of times those are harder to adopt out just because, you know, people have this sort of prejudice against, you know, the, the ruby-eyed whites, even though they have the sweetest personality. So it really, it really depends um, on how easily adoptable that bunny is, you know, how long it's going to stay in the foster system. But, um, you know, we take any length of, of, um, of time, as much as you're willing to give anywhere from, you know, two weeks to a year, if you're willing to do that or more. Um, it all depends. And, and if, if you're not ready to adopt, if you found out you're not ready to adopt after fostering it for a few weeks or a few months, it's not a problem. You know, we can, we can always um, find, uh, you know, find somebody else to, to take in the meantime while we find mm-hmm. another foster family. You know, that's one of the great things about the rescues is that you, you always have a support system, right. um, you know, no matter what happens, even after a rabbit is adopted out. Um, if you have any questions, if you have any concerns or your life situation changes, you always have that support group and somebody that you can ask. We commit to taking the rabbit back if your life situation changes and you adopt it from us. We right. commit to taking the rabbit back from you. But once somebody's fostered an animal, I mean, at least you would think it is, is going to up the chances that they would want to keep it. If they go into it thinking they're, they, they're interested in a rabbit, they spend a little bit of time with it there's a high possibility they'll keep it, right? We, I guess, technically have two different types of fostering situations. So um, we have people like myself. I do have my own rabbits, but I foster. I have rotating fosters. I even actually have some permanent fosters with health issues. Um, so we have people that just want to foster, and they're committed to you know, having rabbits until they get adopted out to someone else. But then we also have foster to adopt situations where someone is interested in a particular rabbit, but maybe doesn't know if they're quite ready yet. And those people, I would say that the turnaround, well, I guess it depends, but would should be shorter um, because they already know that they're interested in that particular rabbit that they've decided to foster. Um, and we're just giving them the opportunity so they're not taking it on without knowing, you know, what the situation is, how it's going to work out for them. Mm-hmm. What is uh, 2021 looking like then, um, Kathy? Is this going to be a busy year for you all? Well, um, we had our first stray that we caught on January 1st. 
And so it looks like the um, increase in rabbits or the need for rabbit uh, foster care is um, still going to be there. We're a little concerned about uh, the ability to raise money and have um, virtual events. We're talking a lot about that. Um, we had over $18,000 medical bills last year and that excludes spay and neuters. So um, as we mentioned, that's all raised by donations or through donations and without having the events, that's a challenge. But we're very concerned because we are at our peak right now. We've had a couple of surprise litters. One thing, oftentimes when we wrangle, it, it'll happen the next day. Oh, guess what? The rabbit feels safe and there's a litter of babies popped out. So we just had, um, we've had a couple of litters in the last two weeks. So we're close to 90 rabbits now and we're concerned because we cannot take more in. We really are at our max capacity but we don't foresee the need for a rabbit rescue to uh, be there. And every other rescue is near capacity as well. Mm -hmm. Jessica, what is 2021 shaping up for you like? It sounds like you're going to have your work cut out for you. Yeah. Um, well, unfortunately, I think we're not taking in any stray rabbits at the moment because of RHDV2 and how dangerous it is. Because as we mentioned, we are all foster-based and a lot of our foster families have rabbits of their own or other foster, you know, other bunnies that they're fostering. There's never, hardly ever, I should say, just one bunny in the house. So we're really concerned about it spreading within our own rescue. So unfortunately, we might have to pass on some of these, some of these abandoned strays, unless mm -hmm. there are people that step up that don't have any bunnies, you know, that are willing to foster. That's really the best case scenario you know, for us right now. And that's why we're so desperate for people. With COVID, uh, as you mentioned before, once this whole COVID mess is done, you know, well, hopefully it won't happen, but we might see a lot of people returning their, their rabbits or releasing them into the wild. And so it could potentially be very busy as far as abandoned pets. I've been speaking with Denica Robbins, Jessica Helmer, and Kathy Harcher. They're with Orlando Rabbit Care and Adoption. Thank you all so much. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having Thank us. You. Thank you. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Production assistance for this week's show from Abe Abariah and Clarissa Moon. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find archived shows on our website, wmfe.org intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.